Indioskos. Welcome to the show. Michael Yoskos. Michael Yoskos. Let's try that one again, Indy. You're, you're in Australia. You should be able to add the O's to anything. Michael Oskos. Ah, I was going for scoliosis. That's not a defective disorder. <laughs> ah, relevant. Oh, uh, yeah. Nice little link. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you, Indy, should be feeling in the spotlight today. Ah! Oh. <laughs> <laughs> why i don't understand what's gonna happen <laughs> yes yeah, so today's episode we're going to be deep diving into your family context your family history to see what sort of things could have encouraged or exacerbated your practice in bdsm today and this episode is the final of the more foundation episodes we've been doing in this season before we get into the real links between this stuff and BDSM. Mm. I'm looking forward to that, definitely. So, Indy, are you ready? I am. I'm ready. I'm I'm good. I've got my puppy on my lap. He's oh. fast asleep. Well, that puppy used to be chocolate licorice. <laughs> <laughs> it's changed, hasn't it? Swapping yeah. one vice for another. <laughs> What's going to be next? Another child? <laughs> <laughs> You know me too well. Mm. So, Indy, let's start this off by me asking you, what sort of world were you born into? Well, I was born in the early 80s, and at that point my mother and father were living in South Africa. It was the end of apartheid, but there was still a lot of violence and difficulty in the society. And I actually want to go back even further to why they were in South Africa. My On my mother's side, my grandfather had decided to move to South Africa from Portugal. I bring up my grandfather because he is quite pivotal in a lot of what I've now uncovered as what's led me to become a dominant and where I'm at in BDSM. It's actually linked way back to my grandfather. So what happened with his life was that when he was little, he had a mother and father. His father was very well educated and actually became a government official in the town, the village, the little village. However, his wife was very, very simple, a very, very simple farmer woman. And what ended up happening is that my grandfather discovered that his father had been having a whole lot of affairs, and this brought a lot of shame to the family, an incredible amount of anger towards his father because he loved his mother dearly and saw her hurt by all of this. My grandfather then, to very fast forward his life, grew into an adult himself, married a woman who was also quite simple. He repeated the cycle. He had a whole lot of affairs on his own wife and he was quite abusive towards his children who included my mother. Very, very physically violent and aggressive and angry and would deliberately talk to my mum about her body and being fat and being disgusting and really, really shame her for her body, for the sort of body shame stuff, and criticise her and and was very, very controlling as well. He was a very controlling person from 
from a lot of the sort of things you hear about with chauvinistic men. And the woman had to stay home. She had to have the dinner on the table. It had to be perfect. Otherwise, there'd be consequences. You know, it was very, very controlling. So that's the environment my mum grew up in, where she was essentially shamed a lot and had this kind of torment about her father cheating on, on her mother and all of that kind of stuff was going on. So my mum gave birth to me with that history. And my dad, on the other hand, he was going through a lot of grief because his father had unexpectedly died just a year before I was born. The dynamic in my parents was that my mum took up the emotional space in the relationship. She had an eating disorder. From the time that I was born, she was already bulimic. And she was also very impulsive in the sense that she would she had shopping addictions and would buy things and emotionally volatile and angry and and quite unpredictable in her anger and her outbursts. And a lot of what she would do is she'd have these controlling kinds of she'd have these these areas of her life she wanted to control. So she always wanted to have a neat, clean, tidy house. And she also wanted to control her body, which she was doing through the eating disorders. My dad, on the other hand, was not taking up any of the emotional space or very little of it. So despite his father having passed away, the focus was still on my mum and all of these, these emotional intensities. So when I was born, they're in South Africa. And in my early years, they were just very keen to to leave that country. Mm. So a lot of time was energy and spent on my dad's behalf on trying to get out and escape. My mum was left often for months looking after us. So I then had a, another sibling, a sister that came 18 months after me. My mum really struggled in those early years because, as I'm saying, my, my dad was away working or trying to find some way to, to get us out of the country. She did self-harm and and I think that she was really struggling with her own self-worth. She, I don't think I mentioned enough that when she was growing up, she was constantly compared to her sister, her younger sister, who was more beautiful, better looking, um, more successful, and she was constantly put down for being not good enough. And that's the way that she really she she really felt about herself. She really internalised that. Mm. So she suffered greatly with this sense that she just was fundamentally not worthwhile. And she was really in torment in her own self and was kind of, it's kind of was hard for her to see us, the kids. We just were really a struggle for her to have to kind of maintain and and look after. We then did move to Australia, and in the early years of our migration, that was very difficult. I had to go straight into school even though I was four years old and I didn't speak any English. They had to work. They both had to get jobs, and they straight away thought, oh, we're going to save money if she's in school. That's what they've told me now as a grown-up. They, they had to get me in, in school. <laughs> and so I was, I was just rapidly thrown into a completely new life. I also wanted to mention that this time that there was a lot of pressure and stress on the family because 
my father was the first of a, a whole family, extended family that wanted to come out. And so he wanted to sponsor his family to come out. He, he had a lot of responsibility going on. And he also had responsibility to keep working. So it was that, you know, that's that age old kind of man, protector, provider mm. stuff that he was really wrapped up in. And my mum was also working and she really missed her family and her friends and she didn't want to be in Australia. And there was a lot of arguing that happened between them about that. Also what happened around the time that we came to Australia was that I found myself really unable to eat food. I was one of those kids you'd call a picky eater or a fussy eater. And this was very complex in my family because my mother was actively bulimic and struggling with her own body image and had a child who wasn't eating. And I was extremely thin, so mm. thin you could see my rib cages and they had to take me to doctors. They were really concerned. And I just I just could not eat food. It was partly because of the textures of food and all that kind of stuff, but also because there was so much anxiety tied to food because the adults around me were always trying to pressure me to eat. So what I developed into was a very emaciated-looking, bony child, and I was also very anxious. I took on the family stress greatly, and it manifested in all sorts of anxieties. And that's something my mum found very, very difficult to manage. She found it annoying. She found it a frustration. So a lot of my expression, a lot of who I really was, what I felt was was a source of um, I don't know, I'm just finding this hard, sorry. No, it makes sense. Um, Take your time. Yeah, so that I was a source of annoyance, I guess I could you'd call it. And mm. and it was with compassion now I can see where my mum was coming from. It's just she yeah. just she herself never had the love and care. So she was not really had it she didn't really have a template for herself. Mm. In fact, something her sister said to me my aunt said to me is that she vowed never to have children because she felt as though the childhood they had growing up and the way that my grandfather was so abusive, she recognised that she put a lot onto children. She didn't want to have to do that. She didn't want to do that. Mm. So there's significant trauma in my mum's history. And mm. I then, regarding food and my weight, threading through my life from from that early time onwards was shame. I felt shame that I wasn't able to eat like everybody else. I felt shame about my body because my mum would constantly compare herself to me in a jealous way. Mm. Oh, look at that dress. I can't believe how nice you look in that dress. I could never wear a dress like that. She would also try and make me eat chocolate and she'd make me try and eat foods in this weird vibe I'd got of like she wanted me to get fat so that she felt better about herself. Like that, I know that sounds really blunt, but that's kind of the vibe it was for a lot of the time. Mm. And 
I had a sister who was also overweight. So there was a real outsiderness to me because my sister and my mum were similar and I was mm. I was the one that didn't fit in. Also with eating, my mum was bulimic, as I've mentioned. So what that meant is she went through periods of being completely out of control with her binging and she would just eat packets and packets of food and then you'd, you'd see her reach for an ice cream tub and it was just out of control stuff. And so only as an adult do I recognise that an eating problem I developed was a compensation to that is because she's so out of control, I have to be so in control. Mm. And that's why I ended up developing a more sort of anorexic-looking eating problem. So what that meant for me was that threaded through my identity was a sense of shame or defectiveness about my appearance. I was an outsider for it. I had to try my best to compensate for what my mum's body looked like. Uh, and, and I also increasingly felt as though all of that kind of stuff that happens for women around conditioning with bodies and, and thin bodies, thin bodies was happening. How old are you at this time? Around the time where I was developing the eating problem. Mm. More in my teens, teens and 20s. So going back, though, a bit, so primary school was relatively normal apart from that early start where I had to transition massively. Primary school was pretty normal. In high school I felt like, again, uh, just like the other other kids in my class. But what started to happen as high school progressed is that I increasingly started to feel as though there must be something wrong with me because the other girls would get attention from boys, they would get asked out by boys, and this was never happening to me. And so the the kind of thing I started to do is I was increasingly convinced that I was ugly because that was my only way of explaining it is that I must be ugly and unattractive to guys. And I became obsessed with trying to figure out if I was ugly or not, but yeah. I had such shame around it and such intense embarrassment that I could never ask anyone for the reassurance of whether I was ugly or not. So what I ended up doing is I used to do a lot of self-portraits. I'd go and look at myself in the mirror and draw pictures to try and figure out the contours and if they were as ugly as I figured they were. Mm. And it then intensified to the point where I became fixated on my nose, the profile and look of my nose. And to help explain why I was getting no attention from guys, I thought, well, it must be my nose then. And I felt grotesque and hideous. I really, I really was convinced that I was some kind of hideous-looking creature at some stage, and I had deep shame about my appearance. I felt very self-conscious around people. I never wanted to look at them side-on. I didn't want them to see my profile. Mm. I would always position myself in ways. I don't think you ever knew this, Michael. Mm. Even in times when I was knowing when I knew you, I would position myself to make sure as much as I could that the people who I felt needed to, I needed to appear good enough would see me 
front on and not on on my side where my nose would would look a certain way and I then became fixated on the idea that I needed to get a nose job but I was extremely worried to bring that up with anyone in case it was really true that I should get a nose job so this was completely internal no one I never spoke to anyone about this and I imagine it's such a common story with teenage girls even boys, I guess, with muscle growth, but girls would be going through all of this stuff. But yeah. how horrible. Yeah, yeah. And what didn't help was that, like, every other girl in my group was going out with a guy mm. or at least once had gone out with a guy. I'd never been approached by anyone. None of them talked to me. And the thing is as well, I did have an experience, I think we've talked about in this podcast, about a crush approaching me once mm. when I was in year nine, year 10 or whatever it was, and me running out the room, unable <laughs> to compute that as a possibility. Mm. And when I look back at photos of myself, I think, oh, Indy, oh, Indy, why did you think so ill of yourself? Mm. You're actually a sweet, gorgeous young lady. But I was really, really caught up in all of this. And so... My exterior was a, a big focus and what I continuously found myself coming up against was that I was just not good enough. And it's interesting that it replays a lot of what my mum felt about her and her self-worth and what was modelled to me. Like, oh, I can't wear those pants. They'll look fat in those pants. It's the kinds of things she would be saying all the time. Or if I eat that ice cream, we've got to go for a two-hour walk because... Otherwise, I'm going to get fat. I'm going to get a fat stomach. Look at my fat stomach. Look at my fat arms. And so the message I kept getting was, well, fat's not good. But also my mum didn't ever really model a comfort and ease in her own body. Mm. It was the opposite of that. So what I'm hearing, Indy, so far is that as you were growing up, there was a lot of complexity around your image, around food. And that was a result of, again, the complexity that your parents had, particularly your mother and her own suffering. And what I liked so far is how you've pointed out the generational trauma, you know, starting with your great grandfather coming down to your grandfather, then your mother, then you, and how that's mm -hmm. all sort of related around themes of control and self-worth. And in particular to you and your mum, it manifested through food was one way to try to regain control or show the lack of control. Hmm. Yeah, and I really want to emphasise the self-worth thread that comes through this line. It's something that is generational and passed down. And so by the time I'm this next generation on, there's multiple people before me who've, who've had fundamental feelings of defectiveness and shame in themselves. Mm. So my great-grandfather cheated. He was in, I didn't mention this, but he was in a really super, super religious Catholic community. So he was really going against his own values and had inner conflicts about that, I'm assuming. My, my grandfather then having the shame and the defectiveness he felt about his father and what it meant that his father would do this to him and his, him and his mother. And then within his own adulthood, repeating his father's 
behaviours, the shame and defectiveness that would bring on, which then leads to my mother and her defectiveness in all of the outright ways in which my, my grandfather told her she was not good enough, which was a projection of his own shame yeah. and defectiveness right out onto her. And then you have me next in line. So it's a long line of defectiveness, self-worth, difficulties. Some people might hear this and think, oh, I'm sort of doomed to repeat the same behaviours and repeat the same things that my parents and great-grandparents thought. But what I like about you and I think, and maybe you can say something as a psychologist, is the amount of awareness you have about this all seems to either slow down or stop these cycles from repeating and repeating because you have your own child at the moment and just your awareness of yourself really i can see you bring up your child quite lovely <laughs> if i don't say oh, so myself i'm smiling right now michael thanks yeah. i mean nothing's perfect things will slip through but the more aware you are and the more compassionate you are i think it really can put a full stop to generational trauma 100%. And I know this is an aside, but this is why I'm driven to do the work I do. Mm. Is Actually, I don't think my grandparents' generations up or my mum's generation, any of them had the conditions in which they could mm. slow down to self-reflect. Yeah. There weren't psychologists. There was massive stigma. There wasn't recognition. Mm. And so for a lot of us, this I'm, I'm talking about a lot of us, listeners, yourself, me, we are in conditions where we, we can have that opportunity. And I do see it as a privilege, yeah. both that I can reflect and then be more conscious and aware in my own parenting with compassion, like you're saying, but then also in my work, provide that opportunity for others as well, as much as I can. So you finished high school and now you're moving to university. What happens now? University was a mixed experience. On one hand, I loved it. I loved learning. I was very curious. I'd go to lectures I didn't even enroll. I wasn't even enrolled in. And I was just in, I was in a candy shop. It was just, oh, yeah, I can learn about Celtic studies. I can learn about the astro astronomy and, wow, there's also this. And I just, I was in love. Uh, on the other hand, I really didn't succeed socially at all. Part of the reason was that the course I did wasn't a small, strong cohort. I didn't have a group that was consistent because it was a double degree. So I didn't really have anyone I was in the same classes with all the time at all. So I didn't really develop any friendships at all. So I didn't really develop any friendships. How I dealt with that was by immersing myself in books, plunging myself in the library and research and doing really well at university. <laughs> yeah, you did. You did very well. <laughs> I took it up as a challenge and it did. Something I haven't really talked about up until now is that I as you know, I, I've mentioned I was in school from four. I ended up having to go through remedial classes because I wasn't speaking English. 
a lot of primary school, a lot of the stuff went over my head. I didn't know what was going on because I had a learning difficulty. And then in high school, my high school was so relaxed that they just didn't even, it was just not even. (laughs) (laughs) So I also formed over time, part of my defectiveness was also the identity of I'm dumb. I don't get things. I don't understand really, really simple things that other people understand. I remember my maths tutor would be explaining things to me and I would just pretend that I knew what he was talking about. And then he would say, okay, so now do the example and I'd get it wrong and then he'd get angry at me. And that would just be how it happened. And then he would explain it again and then I was so stressed that I really have to understand this time, but I didn't understand it at all. So I pretended again that I got it. <laughs> it's just, And that's just one example. That's how school felt. Now if we're turning to university, I was learning what I was interested in. I could take it at a pace that felt right for me. I didn't have to rely on teachers. I had to rely more on myself. Those conditions all meant I felt great. So on one level, some of the defectiveness really shifted. I started to improve my sense of self-worth in regards to my intelligence. However, this stuff about not being in a relationship just disintegrated into even more defectiveness. I didn't get any boys interested in me in in university at all. It's the same story as high school. And, again, same kinds of attributions. It must be that I'm ugly, there's something wrong with me, and all that kind of stuff. And it makes sense now when you relate it back to the previous episode where you talk about meeting that first boyfriend who essentially became like that really high profile, rich, first class, you know, and you were so disgusted by him when you met him and dated him. And at the end of the first date, you said, no, never. And then it, and you ended up being with him because you felt so undesirable that, you know what, just getting any attention trumps any sort of rational or emotional response towards this man. And that was, as you say, a very toxic, what was a very toxic relationship, very toxic, where you ended up being doing things which you didn't consent to and, you know, so it makes sense. And part of that drove even more of the defectiveness and shame Mm. because here I am with someone for years, mind you, who I'm not attracted to and I'm doing all of these things I don't want to be doing and I'm doing them anyway. So my self-worth just took even more of a hit and my sense of defectiveness was even stronger because I was incapable of anything healthy with a man. (laughs) So perfect storm really. And Mm. if we start to put this all together is, uh, and to make it clear, is that I'm in BDSM, I really engage a lot in the dominant role. Mm. And my main label, my, my main, my main image is of the goddess that I, that I'm worshipped for my beauty. Yeah. Which is a, which is an interesting link. It's an interesting pronoun to uphold, especially when you've had a life 
are feeling the opposite. And this is now something we're going to start to uncover in the next episode. Yeah. And so just so that there is a link here already, it's it's interesting to start to consider that I was very, very, I was very, very drawn to the dominant role where I had a lot of male attention and I was worshipped and done all of these things with exact how exactly how I wanted them, very safe. I was always replied to when I wanted. Men were bowing down to me, giving me offerings. Okay, Indy, so just to sum it all up, it sounds that uh, throughout your early life and then also moving into your 20s, you had a sense of defectiveness, which was just being reinforced and strengthened over time. Yeah, and then helps us to see why I was led down the path of BDSM, becoming a dominant. Until next time, take care. You too.